Welcome to another episode of the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 62. I am your host, Noah Rochetta, and today I'm sharing the audio of a discussion I had with Frank Ostaseski on the topic of death. Death is perhaps our greatest teacher. It's awareness of death that can be said to be the secret to life, the secret to living life fully. And Frank is an expert on the topic. He's a Buddhist teacher, an international lecturer, and a leading voice in end-of-life care. He co-founded the Zen Hospice Project, which was the first Buddhist hospice in America, and he created the Meta Institute to provide innovative educational programs and professional trainings that foster compassionate, mindfulness-based care. He's the author of a book called The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Fully Living. And I've been excited to interview him because the topic of death is perhaps, as I mentioned before, one of the most powerful Uh, topics that we can approach when it comes to trying to live more mindfully. I don't know of a single thing that can uh, trigger a more profound shift of perspective than having a close encounter with death, whether that be uh, on a personal note, you know, a a close encounter with death or uh, encountering, you know, a loved one finding out a loved one has cancer or finding out that a loved one just lost someone that they care about. Anytime we encounter death, it seems to be the most uh, impactful and profound change that we experience. It's in those moments that we are keenly aware of just how fragile life is that we become very mindful about what really matters. And oftentimes we find in those moments that the things that we thought that really mattered don't. And the things that we kind of discard and don't think they really matter, we find out those are the things that really do matter. It kind of has a tendency to flip things upside down almost. And I've been wanting to have a discussion on this topic because I think it is uh, a profound topic. And... Unfortunately, death is something that we don't think about or talk about very often in our society. And I understand why I think, you know, it, it makes us sad. And, and at the core of everything that Buddhism teaches is this premise that where there is discomfort, we run from it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it because it's not comfortable. And I love how the Buddhist approach is saying the opposite. It's saying well, wait a second, this is perhaps the only certain thing that we uh, have in life. Why not look towards it? Why not use death as an ongoing way of living fully, of living more mindfully? And I, several years ago, I tried this experiment myself to think about death often, not just uh, my own death, but the death of the people closest to me, the people that I love and care about. And it is uncomfortable, but over time, it's settled into this sense of reality. I know that I'm going to lose 
everyone that I care about. I know when I interact with people out on the street that that they're not going to live forever. I'm not going to live forever. And it has a it has the ability to change the way that we interact with people. It has the ability to help us to not get uh, so bent out of, sh- out of shape over things because we start to see the impermanent nature of life and the impermanent nature of every single moment. This moment passes away so that a new moment arises. And it's, it's life-changing to think this way. And that's why I wanted to share this topic. And Frank is the best person to have this discussion with. Uh, in his book, The Five Invitations, he talks about uh, five specific invitations that you can apply to your life to, um, to start to see death differently. We discussed that a little bit in the interview, but I would invite you to pick up his book, The Five Invitations, and to read that. And then hopefully, um, you know, as, as strange as it sounds, I would invite you to think about death often, the death, uh, uh, your death and the death of, of everyone that you know. And like I said, with time, you know, th- this can become a profound way of living very mindfully. Um, the Buddha's greatest teaching is the teaching of impermanence. And death is the ultimate expression of this teaching. Everything that is familiar to us ceases. And I think that awareness of death is the secret to living mindfully. Um, It's when we're reminded how fragile life is, that's when we become aware of how precious every single moment is, whether it be a pleasant moment or an unpleasant moment. So with that as the background, I hope you enjoy this discussion that I had with Frank Ostaseski. Without further ado, I give you uh, the audio recording of the interview I had with Frank. Thank you. Okay, this interview is being streamed live now across the uh, Secular Buddhism Facebook page, YouTube channel, and uh, probably a few other places. Um, so what, what I do at the end of this interview, I failed to mention this to you a second ago, I'll take the audio, the audio will be uploaded to the podcast. But the video, uh, the raw video of, of the interview will reside on the Facebook page where um, uh, followers of the of the Facebook page or, or, or group can watch it later if they didn't okay, see it great. live. Just send me a link to it. We'll, we'll bring our people to it. All right. Well, those of you who are uh, watching or listening live, welcome. I am very excited to have Frank Ostaseski with me. Um, and to have a lively discussion on the topic of death today. Um, and it, it sounds a little humorous at times to, you know, to speak lightly of death. And at the same time, I, I, I do want to emphasize the fact that from my perspective, um, the teaching of impermanence in Buddhism is perhaps the most powerful uh, transformative teaching. The idea that at any given moment, a moment passes away to give rise to a new moment and then extending that thought all the way onto this experience of being alive and the ever present thought of this experience ending can be very profound. And Frank is one of the experts on this topic. Uh, he's a Buddhist teacher, an international international lecturer and a leading voice in end of life care. In uh, 1987, he co-founded the Zen hospice project 
the first Buddhist hospice in America. In 2004, he created the Meta Institute to provide innovate, innovative and educational programs and professional trainings that foster compassion, uh, mindfulness-based care. And he's the author of a book called The Five Invitations, which I happened to read earlier this year. And then recently listened to him uh, talking about the, the topic of death and his book on another podcast, on Sam Harris's podcast. And I'm a big fan of of, of Sam Harris's podcast. Mm. And I thought it would be really cool to invite him onto the Secular Buddhism podcast. And he very graciously accepted the invitation. And that's why he's here today. So we're going to talk about uh, discovering what death can teach us about fully living. So thank you very much, Frank, for taking the time to join us today. Uh, no, I'm really happy to be with you and happy to also be with the viewers and listeners that uh, will be uh, taking advantage of this, I hope. And yeah, I like that we're going to sort of emphasize the living part. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what can death teach us about living a full life? Yeah, living a life characterized by love and Absolutely. meaning and purpose. Yeah. So it seems to me, and anyone listening would probably agree, if you've ever had a, a brush with death, you know, the the a, a family member or a loved one either passing away or almost passing away, it changes you. You start. Mm. Death seems to be the the teacher that can, at any given moment, just radically shift your priorities radically shift your perspective. Everything changes in the face of death. And it's not necessarily that we have to wait for that final moment when we realize, uh-oh, I'm about to pass away. You know, we get glimpses of this when we find out a, a good friend passed away or uh, a friend's cousin or, you know, anytime we, we brush uh, with death, it seems to trigger something in us, a, a more mindful way of living. And then it seems to wear off. And with time, we kind of forget, and then we're reminded again of, of our mortality, right? And and we're right back at it. We're suddenly priorities shift. So uh, in your with your work, you seem to be uh, you're immersed in this all the time. So let's talk a little bit about how transformative that experience is. Being uh, regularly reminded of death. What does that? What? How does that change the day to day living? The you know the living part of this experience. <laughs> well, it's a great question. And, 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 and the scenario that you paint is uh, a, quite a common one, right? We have some encounter and then we kind of spring back into our old habits. You know, I mean, I we think that something will happen later and later gives us that comfortable buffer between, you know, where we are in this moment and when we think death will happen at the end of some long road, for example, or long illness. But, you know, I talk about death as being the secret teacher that is hiding in plain sight you know, showing us what matters most, you know, um, helping us to really appreciate um, how to step into this life. And I don't think we have to wait until even to our own dying, certainly, or even to a brush with death to understand something about that. It's all the time here, you know. It's not just when we step off a curb and a car narrowly misses us. It's reading the newspaper, you know, yeah. or watching the evening news, or... You know, as you say, friends of friends um, coming, having an encounter with loss. Um, it's not just um, it, it's not just that death comes, and then it reminds us of life. It's more that we start stepping into the every day, every moment coming and going of life. 
And when we do that, when we recognize it's totally precarious, no, I, you know, I mean, it's all precarious. Then I think it also helps us to appreciate how precious it is. And then we don't want to waste a moment. You know, mm -hmm. that's what I find to be really useful about this, this experience that it no, shows us we're all in the boat together, you know, and I, I think this engenders us being kinder to one another. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't it fascinating that, um, death is perhaps the most certain, uh, thing we have, you know, <laughs> we're so uncomfortable with uncertainty in life. We, we chase after things to try to have a sense of control, a sense of certainty. And yet here it is glaring almost in front of us this the certainty of of our death and the death of everything we hold dear everyone that we know and yet we seem to never want to think about it why why do you think that is at least in our society why is it so taboo to think about the death of a loved one or to uh, mm. you know why well you know i mean i think that um this has been our training since we were very young you know to see death as the enemy um as a um, curtain, laugh, final curtain call, all that stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and instead really what would happen if we began to speak with our youngsters, our children more about death in it? I think actually in my experience, kids are really fascinated by this. They really want to know about it and they're not scared of it at all. You know, mm -hmm. it's just that we've told ourselves really scary stories about death. So that's happening, but it's also changing. You know, I think that, you know, um, we've removed death from everyday life oftentimes in our experience. And that's part of what makes it foreign. And we made it technological and we've mystified it and we've, you know, turned it over to doctors and priests and undertakers, you know? And I think when we do that, we rob us ourselves really of connection with the holy significance of death really. So I think it's shifting. I think people are wanting to have this conversation more and more. They're just, don't know how to have it mm -hmm. and they want to have it with people who aren't so afraid to talk about it yeah you know and I, I think that's what we're doing today you know we're just having an honest conversation about it and, um so i think there has been this traditionally all of this avoidance and taboos etc you know yeah. but that's a relatively new phenomenon you know we have to really think and we think in terms of the history of the humankind mm -hmm. you know this is something that's decades old yeah you know yeah you know something i i've really appreciated from the buddhist perspective um you know rather than seeing life as this force opposed by death as its opposite uh the buddhist approach mm -hmm. really meshes the two and it helps you to get out of that dualistic way of thinking of life and death and and then you see it as life death it's like the same you can't have one without the other and um right. that uh, that mental approach for me was, was a, a pretty radical shift to realize um, you, that you, you know, you should, if you love life, why should you hate death? Right? Because you can't have one without the other. And, and I was having a conversation with my son who's eight years old. We were driving and he was asking mm -hmm. me, uh, I don't remember exactly how the topic came up, but we were talking about death. And I said, um, what if instead of talking about it, like, death like the end we just realize it's 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 a continuation and, and i started to give him examples i said um you know the death of of winter is the birth of what and and i mean right away is like uh spring yeah and the death of spring mm. is the birth of what and when we started going through this process we talked about caterpillars you know what is the death of a caterpillar it's the birth of a butterfly and so uh, everything in the context of the end of something is the start of something else 
And, and I think that was very profound for him. And then he came up with with scenarios, and and some were comical that it was, you know, the the death of a cow is the birth of a hamburger, or you know, things like that. <laughs> and I was saying this this is what I wanted him to grasp is continuation. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, yeah. it it doesn't spell the end in the sense of non existence. It's transformation. And I thought that was really neat, and it was fun to have that conversation with him. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to have a conversation with a child, and and um, and to really listen uh, also to what they think about it, mm -hmm. as opposed to us telling them all the time what, what it should be. Yeah. I used to run a preschool years ago uh, when my son was quite young. He's grown adult with his own children now, but um, we used to have these days in the preschool where we go out into the woods, the nearby woods. And find dead stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, the kids loved it. You yeah. know, they'd go out and they'd find a rusty old car part or a twig or a leaf or, um, you know, bones of a bird. And we'd bring them all back and spread them out on a blue tarp. And then we'd have a kind of show and tell. And the kids would talk about what they'd seen. And they were incredibly imaginative. I mean, they would talk about this piece of bark had been a, you know, bed for a mouse and the mouse didn't need it anymore. And this rusty old car part was a part of a spaceship that had fallen from as it passed over the earth. Um, and then this one little girl said something beautiful. She said, I think the leaves on the trees are very, very generous, that they fall to make room for new leaves. Mm -hmm. I that was a beautiful understanding, you know, from this four-year-old, mm -hmm. really. And I think if we can have conversations like the one you were having with your son or the one I'm describing with children early on, instead of frightening them, you know, I think it really makes a huge difference in how we grow up in keeping death as our companion in a way, you know, mm -hmm. we learn then how to harness an awareness of death to appreciate the fact that we're really alive, you know, to encourage self-exploration, to clarify our values, to find meaning, uh, to generate positive action in our life, you know? Yeah. I think it's impermanence that gives us perspective. Um, it helps us to appreciate the beauty of life. Yeah, absolutely. So so your first invitation in the book is to not wait, right? We shouldn't, we don't need to wait uh, to have these conversations. And um, one of the things that stood out to me when I first thought about not waiting was also not waiting to think about all the scenarios that could happen. Uh, I first came across this concept years ago, um, reading another book. Um, but I remember having the thought, what would it be like if I lost my, you know, when I lose my parents, it's a thought that I had avoided. Uh, I'm a twin brother and we're very close. And that was another thought. Mm -hmm. What would it be like to not have my twin brother? And that was, you know, it, it hit on emotions that I didn't want to explore yet. And that sense of not waiting for me was realizing well, why not explore that now? What would it feel like to not have him in my life? And it made every moment more precious since that thought mm. experiment because it's like, oh, I still have him and I still have my mm. mom and I still have my dad, right? Um, so the idea of not waiting, I think, um, can, can be beneficial also in, in, in terms of not waiting to think of what it will be like when we don't have the people that we currently have. Do you find that that as a thought experiment, is that... I mean, it can be difficult, right? No one likes to think of, of the loss of their loved ones. But once you get, do you get used to it the more you practice it? Uh, does it, what do you find with, with, with this thought? Well, I mean, I think that it's an interesting exercise to do, as you're suggesting. And, and it can be just kept as a kind of thought experiment. And um, 
that keeps us in safe territory, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important that we let that drop into our heart and into our bones and really know it to be true. It, it is true. It's a fact of life that all those who are dear to us, we will be separated from, you know, that's inevitable. Mm-hmm. So um, at first, this is a scary thought, and it brings up this kind of urgency, you know. And um, But that urgency isn't all bad. It also is a reminder to really step in with both feet into our life, right, to tell the people we love that we love them now, mm-hmm. you know, not to wait for the, you know, some other opportunity for that. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I think it's the precariousness of this life that helps us to appreciate its beauty. You know, I mean, every year cherry blossoms explode on the hillsides of Japan, right? There's a beautiful place where I teach in the Northwest where there are these little blue flax flowers that last for a single day. Mm-hmm. Now, how come those flowers are so much more beautiful than plastic flowers? Huh? Mm. Is it, isn't it part of the fact that they're, they're, they have a brief life? You know, the brevity of their lives help us to appreciate their beauty? Yeah. So it's not that, you know, it's all sad. It's that it's all, it is really about stepping, really fully stepping into our life. You know, I think that, you know, um, don't wait is, is a reminder that waiting for the next moment to arrive, we miss this one, mm-hmm. you know? I, I've been with hundreds and hundreds of families, you know, who have said to me in one way or another, you know, when is mom going to die? And waiting for the moment of death, we miss all the moments in between, mm. you know? So I think it's more, it's not that it should create a panic in us, but it's like, don't fool around. Don't fool yourself into believing you have endless time, you know? That's a ridiculous, you know, I say to imagine at the time of your death, you will have the clarity of mind, the, you know, emotional stability, the physical strength to do the work of a lifetime is a ridiculous gamble, mm-hmm. you know? Let's not wait <laughs> for that. Why? Let's do it now, you yeah. know? Let's really step into our life, both feet. You know, I yeah. found what, what, what you just mentioned, um, the, the passing of a moment. Um, the, so this thought experiment for me that started with, with people, with loved ones, transition Mm -hmm. into an almost constant thought of the passing of a moment, you know, and and Mm -hmm. I catch myself in moments or in phases or in stages of life, anticipating what is the next one. And, and one moment that Mm -hmm. I had that I I still consider to be one of the more special or precious moments I had with my, uh, my youngest, who's two right now was uh, Mm -hmm. the process of changing a, a stinky diaper with her. And, and the thought occurring to me that, It'll be so nice when she's out of diapers. Um, and, and it seemed to have the process happened so quickly that I, when I realized the, fa- the, the stage will come when diapers will no longer be a part of my life. And I'll look back and, and not that I would long for that, but, but I'll look back with, you know, fond memories of the stage of a, a toddler running around in diapers. And I thought, why am I in such a rush to move past this phase? And whatever the next one is, I'm going to be rushed to get past that one. And before you know it, all those stages are gone and they're not even at home anymore. And like I said, all that happened pretty quickly while I was still changing the diaper, but it changed the experience of changing the diaper. It became a precious mm. moment that I that I thought, you know, this is what I get to do right now. Uh, mm. and that was one way that it that it kind of manifested for me, this idea. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, the great value of having elders in our culture, you know, and we've lost a little bit of the wisdom of elders, I think, oriented. Um, 
and so living in our sort of ghettos, our youth mm -hmm. ghettos, so to speak. Um, so I think that there's something, you know, there's a wisdom that grows with age. Not all, not all old people are wise. I don't mean to suggest that, but there is something about slowing down. And it's not just because the body gets old and crotchety, you know, it's that you start to see it goes by mm -hmm. really fast. And so it's not like, it's just what I, what I want to encourage is stepping into it, really enjoying it, fully, you know, not tasting it all. You know, for me, that's the really, the most life-affirming thing that I know is being with people who are dying. You know, looking into their eyes, they're clear mirrors. And they really show me where I'm holding, you know, to my fear and to my um, opinions mm -hmm. and views, you know. And, um, and they also show me something else. They show me what I, I sometimes call an undying love, you know, um, a, a love that isn't particular just to a single human being and isn't doesn't come and go with every moment you know something that's steady you know something is always coming together and falling apart everything yeah. you know this morning's breakfast where did it go you know last night's love making where is it you know my my blonde hair it's gone right yeah. it used to be there it's not there anymore <laughs> so uh, i could grieve all of that experience and sometimes it's necessary to do that or i could recognize this is the way of things yeah. And I could appreciate that that coming and going is happening, we could say, against a background of perfect harmony. Yeah. And when we think, when we don't see the background, we only see the coming and going. I think what happens is all we see is suffering, you know. So it's really important to see all this is happening against a background of perfect harmony. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we miss that oftentimes. Yeah. Uh, we're so busy. We spend so much of our day planning for the next moment, right? Yeah. Or, you know, trying to distract ourselves from the current moment, you know, yeah. in some fashion or another. Yeah. But I think embracing the truth that things will inevitably change encourages us not to wait, yeah? yeah, in order to start living our life in a manner that's really deeply engaging, mm -hmm. you know. Stop wasting our time on meaningless activities. We don't hold our opinions or our desires or, or even our identity so tightly, you know. Yeah. And instead of pinning our hopes on, on a better future, we... We focus on the present and we're grateful for what's in front of us. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, we, we say, I love you more often yeah. because we realize the importance of, of human connection. And so I think we become kinder and more compassionate, more forgiving of ourselves and each other. Yeah. I think it's a, I think the don't wait is a pathway to fulfillment an antidote to regret actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, and I, you were talking about grieving and, and I think this is a, an important point to bring up with the with the second invitation that we welcome everything, push away nothing. Um, I think um, there's a tendency to think, well, I don't want to approach this stuff until I'm at a, a place in my life where I can approach it, you know, in a way that's going to not be too painful or uh, or something along those lines. But this this invitation of welcoming everything includes welcoming the difficulty of encountering and dealing with death. Um, I had a, an experience with one of my uh, college buddies who ended up being a, a business partner with me in a, in a business venture um, about four, four or five years ago. Um, and, and out of the blue, he was diagnosed with uh, stage four melanoma. Mm. And um, he was told he, he had uh, months to live. Um, and it ended up being about a year before he passed. But in that time, what used to be our Tuesday uh, lunch meetings to talk about business turned into our Tuesday meetings 
to talk about life. And it was a fascinating experience to be able to um, talk to him about this process of, of what it feels like to be dying. Um, but um, this thought of welcoming everything, pushing nothing away, you know, there, there were moments where I, I noticed a resistance, especially towards the end of, oh, I don't know if I want to go see him because what do you, what do you say, you know, to someone who's dying and um, things like that, but then thinking, well, it's okay to just feel whatever I'm feeling with him and to have those right. open conversations. And it turned into this beautiful experience where I have a good friend that I, the last time we met for lunch, I was able to give him a hug and thank him for our, for our friendship and thank him for the fun memories in college. And like, uh, I mean, how often do we really get to do that? Um, but that's what I thought of with this welcoming everything, welcoming the difficulty of it too. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, just to back up, just so that people understand the context here, the book is called five invitations. And so an invitation is, you know, if I invite you to my house for dinner or to my wedding, it's, um, invitation to show up actually it's, it's a it's a request for you to be present really and so the five invitations are just that they are they are a request for you to be present and what we're asking you to be present for is your life yeah mm -hmm. and each of these five invitations you've named the first two really were given to me or taught to me by people who are dying you know in one way or another even if they didn't use that exact language they helped me to really see that, oh, this is not only a way to help take care of people at the end of life or as they're in the dying process, but these are really have a relevance for all of us in living a more, you know, peaceful, meaningful, productive life, I think. So the first one, as you said, was don't wait. And the second one is welcome everything, push away nothing. Yeah. Now that sounds really good. It's make a great bumper sticker, but like, how do we do that? Mm -hmm. Welcome everything. Yeah. I mean, as you were suggesting, you know, we like certainty, right? We, we like to have our preferences met, you know? In fact, most of us have been taught that getting what we want and avoiding what we don't want is the key to happiness. Mm -hmm. But inevitably in our lives, um, there are unexpected experiences, right? There are unanticipated moves or we lose our job or there's a family member who gets an illness or, you know, there's a death of a beloved pet, you know? Mm -hmm. And we want to push these things away with all our might, you know? Mm -hmm. um, when we're faced with uncertainty, the first response is usually fear and resistance. Yeah. But I think um, an attempt to evict these difficult aspects of life, you know, from, from our everyday experience is a kind of cause of suffering actually for us, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I think to, to instead, when we cultivate a kind of receptivity, whatever is present, they don't have such a stranglehold on us. You know, I think when we're open and receptive, we have more options. Mm -hmm. You know, we can, we're free to discover, to investigate, to, to learn how to respond to these things in skillful ways. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if our life was just about being comfortable, you know, we would just give people morphine and put them on the couch. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> they'd be really comfortable, but they wouldn't be very alive. Mm -hmm. You know, they wouldn't be very engaged with their lives. Yeah. So, um, with welcoming everything comes the ability to meet and work with both pleasant and unpleasant circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I think gradually with practice, we discover that our well-being is not dependent on just having happy, happy external reality. You know, our, our true happiness, our true contentment actually arises from within. Yeah. I mean, think about yourself, Noah. I mean, 
the changes in your life, the real growth that you've made in your life, it probably didn't happen in your comfort zones, right? Yeah. yeah in fact, I was just thinking as you were saying that, that I think some of the moments where I felt most alive were moments where I was experiencing uh, perhaps the most pain I've ever felt or the most hurt. Um, those were moments that I felt, uh, especially after the fact, looking back and thinking, those are the moments that really helped me to, those were pivotal moments in my life, the, the, the sure. difficult moments. Sure. And it's not like we have to go hunting for them. You know, they're there. Yeah. I mean, they're part of what life delivers to us in a way, as it does also deliver, you know, incredibly beautiful moments, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, this, to welcome everything and push away nothing, it's a deep invitation, you know, to cultivate a certain kind of fearless receptivity. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have any fear. That's people misunderstand fearlessness. Mm -hmm. Fearlessness means um, that fear isn't the only thing in the room. Yeah. That when, when you're afraid, Noah, for example, let me ask you, when you're afraid, do you know that you're afraid? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. How do you know? Like, how do you know you're afraid? Well, I think you, I mean, you feel it. There are physiological right. symptoms. Um, right. And there's a strong aversion to, to whatever uh -huh. it is. Often. Yeah. Fear itself feels like an aversion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there might be physical sensations. There's emotional, you know, associations that occur. The mind starts planning about the future or how to get out of this scary situation. Mm -hmm. So all that's going on, right? But here's the thing I want to point you to, which is that when you know you're afraid, that means that some part of you is not afraid. Hmm. The part that knows you're afraid, that's aware of your fear, it's not afraid. Yeah. And we can orient to just the fear, or we can orient to this awareness, to this knowing, we could say. It doesn't mean the fear goes away. It doesn't mean we don't have to get it to go away. Yeah. yeah. What we have to do is learn how to deal with it skillfully. So we're not, you know, running away from it and it whacks us in the back of the head. Yeah. And I think so sometimes I think the, a considerable part of the suffering we experience is the wanting to get rid of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you know, most of what we call pain, even physical pain, is our resistance to it, you know, and not wanting it to be there. That's mm -hmm. the real cause of suffering, right? Pain plus resistance equals suffering. Yeah. That's the formula we, we can understand. Yeah. You know, I had an experience you know, last summer <laughs> talking about fear. I, uh, I have a, what I consider an irrational fear of snakes. I understand that it's irrational and I, and I've tried to overcome it. It's really difficult for me, but there was a snake in the yard and mm. I made the conscious decision to, it was a little garden snake. All the little kids were playing with it, uh, all my nephews. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go hold it. I'm going to touch the snake and hold it and realize this is okay. The fear never went away in that process. The fear was there, but it's the observer that you're talking about. There was the part of me that could observe, I'm experiencing fear. It's okay. I understand that it's not necessarily rational and I'm going to still proceed to do, you know, what I'm going to do, which is hold this snake. And I was proud of myself after the fact for, for doing it. And, and people who know me well, who were there were like, I can't believe you touched a snake mm -hmm. uh, or that was brave. And I was thinking, well, if brave means I was very scared and still did it, then yes. But if brave means I finally lost my fear, no, that's not accurate. Yeah. Very good. That's a really good distinction. I think people imagine, we're always talking about overcoming our fear, just as we talk about overcoming our grief. 
it's curious to me that we never speak about overcoming our joy. You know, mm-hmm. um, we don't say let's how do we manage our joy a little bit better? Yeah. You know, I think that these experiences, fear, grief, these very strong um, mental, emotional states um, are something we live into and that we learn something about. You know, openness doesn't reject or get attached to any particular experience or view. Mm-hmm. It's a spacious Our awareness is, has can have about it a certain spaciousness undefended quality, you know, non-biased allowing, you could say, you know. Mm-hmm. Openness um, is the nature of awareness itself. It's the nature of our nature, actually. Yeah. You know? And so um, I think this is one of the things that people often discover in and around the time of dying. Um, this thing that they always imagined would be only terrifying or unbearable or unimaginably difficult, they find within themselves frequently the resources to meet what they thought was unbearable in remarkable ways. Hmm. And it isn't because all their fear went away. It's because they discovered they are not just their fear. Yeah. yeah. They're not just their illness. They're not just their dying process. You know, there's more to them than that. And it's not about a spiritual bypass and it's not about spiritualizing the experience. It's recognizing more of your, of who we are. Hmm. You know, what's amazing to me Noah, is not that we can expand. I mean, all of us can, through meditation practice and other ways, experience expansive states of mind and heart and body. What's amazing to me is that we take this expansiveness of who we are and shrink it down into such a small story about who we are. That's what's amazing to me. And that's what gets blown out of the water in and around the time of dying, frequently for people. Yeah. Yeah. The habits of our life have a very strong momentum and they carry through into the time of our dying. And, and sometimes those habits can be really constricting, you know. So we need to ask ourselves now, well, what habits do we want to create? You know, what do we want to cultivate in this life? You know, what do you want to teach your children? You know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So going toward what frightens us or going toward the suffering is oftentimes where the healing is often found, like going and touching the snake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's very relevant with the grieving process as well. You know, after the fact, uh, losing a loved one um, and then dealing with that grief or uh, it could be the rest of your life. Or I think perhaps it is the rest of your life. And the misconception is that one day you'll you'll be done. You, you get over it. Mm-hmm. And, mm. and I see a lot of suffering arise out of that thought that this is a feeling that I'm supposed to overcome, like we were talking about uh, with fear, mm. right? It's, it's not that you overcome it. It's that you, you harmonize with it. You make it a part of the everyday. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to throw, you know, when someone's in the middle of deep grief, they don't want to hear this, you know. Sure. Um, and it's easy to sort of throw conceptual, um, you know, theoretical ideas at these experiences which are gut-wrenching, you know. Um, I think what's true is that our excuse me our relationship to grief, for example, shifts over time. But time alone doesn't heal grief. You know, time and attention heals grief. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, we might feel like we don't we don't know whether we should turn left or right at the end of our driveway. You know, we can't make a meal. We we're, we're absolutely lost in the experience of grief. It's it's emotionally overwhelming. You know, mm-hmm. and it can feel like sadness of course but it can also feel like anger and uh can feel like fear and numbness you know and and even relief those are all faces of grief you know Mm -hmm. but it doesn't stay and it doesn't remain in that intensity forever you know it starts to shift over time Mm 
and with attention. So, you know, after some weeks or months, and it's not a timetable for grief, but often with attention and time, you know, it starts to relax a little bit. And our identity isn't completely consumed by the grief. And so we start to have a different relationship to it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the experience, what you're saying, I think, which is true, is that grief is part of the human condition. You know, it's there for all of us. And it surfaces sometimes, you know, it's like an underground river that surfaces sometimes, like, for example, around the loss of someone we love. But it's always been there, you know. In fact, I think it's our common ground with one another, one of our common grounds. Sure. And the first experience of grief, which feels like fragmentation and isolation, with time and attention and healing, can become a path to wholeness. But you can't tell somebody that at the beginning of their grieving process. All you can do is hang out with them and, you know, make a meal for them and help them do the insurance forms and and have them tell the story of their loss 10,000 times until it feels real for them. So I I think that, um, you know, I mean, you know, I, when I was running Zen Hospice, I'm not anymore, but when I was the director there, I sometimes lost 20 or 30 people in a week. And so I had to learn how to deal with that grief. And so one of the things I did was I went to my meditation cushion and that was a way to cultivate stability and assimilate, metabolize, if you will, the experience of loss. But that wasn't enough, you know? Grief is a physical experience also. So I would go to my body worker mm-hmm. and I'd go in his office and he'd say, where should we touch today, Frank? And instead of him doing some kind of manipulation on me, I'd say, just here on my shoulder, you know? And he'd put his hand on my shoulder and I would just cry for about an hour, you know? And there was something about the touch and also the relationship with somebody else that allowed this grief to really come forward and to be expressed and, and as a way of metabolizing it, mm-hmm. including it. And then I did something else. I, I would go to the hospital nearby where my friends worked in the maternity ward, the nurses on the maternity ward. And on that particular maternity ward, there were babies who were born to addicted mothers. And so before I would go home to my own children, I would go there to this maternity ward and I would sit in a rocking chair and rock these little infants, you know, and it was something about being able to soothe their distress and have them relax in my arms. That was very important and very helpful to me because there were other times when I was with people who were dying, who's frankly suffering. I couldn't soothe, you know, I couldn't, they, they died in difficult conditions. And so, um, I had to find ways to work with that grief, um, that really worked for me. And each person's grief is entirely different. And I'm a little suspicious of models of grief, you know, that we have us managing people's experience. I I think there's a wonderful, great value to things like bereavement groups, et cetera, but sometimes they don't allow for the wildness of grief and and grief can be completely wild, you know, Mm -hmm. feel uncontrollable. Yeah. And it can have a huge effect on the way in which we function in the world. It used to be, in the old days, it used to be that there was, a, you know, you wore a special kind of clothing or a black armband or something to let people know that you're in an altered state mm-hmm. and that they should treat you different. They shouldn't expect you to behave normally, you know? Mm. I mean, now your mother dies and you go to a party and nobody mentions it. Yeah. You know, because we're afraid to upset you. Mm-hmm. And so we leave you isolated and alone in your grief. Yeah. So I think that, uh, um, again, the book, but also my work, and I think it sounds like your way also, is to help people turn toward their experience, Mm -hmm. even if the experience first feels uh, unnerving in some way. Yeah. Stay with it, you know, stay in the room when the going gets rough. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like that. Um, I have a, a question that somebody posted uh, uh -huh. and this is uh, Johnny and he's asking, is it fair to say that when we experience fear, we might want to take a step back and try to find if there's an opportunity hiding behind it? Well, I think that's true. I, I think it's, he's, it's a wise um, comment. Um, the only thing that I would want to encourage us to do is to not do a bypass around the fear, to be willing to feel it, feel it, yeah. you know, to, to see, as you did earlier, sense it in the body, feel the effect in the heart, mood, et cetera, and to see what the activity is in the mind that's occurring so that we get really familiar with the fear. Mm -hmm. um, I think also when we get very familiar with it in that way, we can see it in its arising, you know, before it's in its full explosion, before it's in its full bloom, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I think, yes, um, what Johnny's suggesting to take a backward step, you know, to step back then from all of that activity of mind, heart, and body and say, oh, what else is here? That's my favorite question. What else is here? You know? Yeah. So in addition to the fear and my my reaction to it, well, what else is here? Oh, well, oh, there's some spaciousness here. Oh, there's some understanding that's growing here. Oh, there's some, you know, empathy that's that's emerging here. So to ask that simple question, what else is here, I think is is a wise way to interact with almost any difficult uh, emotional or mind state. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, one other question that somebody commented, and this is kind of a, a different topic, but I think this might be a fun little uh, tangent or segue to, to explore here. Um, uh, this is Derek who's asking, uh, some speculate that we will at some point reach a time when science will be able to extend our lives indefinitely so that mm. we can effectively live forever. Um, mm. How does Frank think this removal of death would affect us? <laughs> you know, that's becoming an increasingly popular question. Um, and uh, I was with a group of Silicon Valley folks uh, not long ago, and, and I said something like, death is inevitable. And the guy raised his hand and he said, oh, I'm not so sure about that. You know, we're trying to hack that right now, yeah. you know. And I said, okay, great. And, and I said, you know, so we'll live for 250 years or we'll live for 500 years. And, you know, I said, let's take the word death out of the equation for a moment. Let's just take it out of the conversation. And let's just deal with how we think about endings. Like, how do we meet endings in our life right now? Like the end of a sentence mm -hmm. or the end of a meal. Or when you leave a party, like, how do you leave the party? Do you just ghost out, you know, or do you say goodbye to people? How do you meet endings? I think the way in which we meet endings can, in fact, have a big influence on how the next moment arises. You know, the way we end one thing tends to shape the way the next thing emerges. So I think that if we could think just for a moment, let go of the notion of death, as a particular some final event and just think about endings, you know, well, that's a really good place to explore because yeah. even if we live forever, there will be endings. There sure. will be endings continuously through that experience. So, um, you know, that's not going to, even, even if we live forever, you know, yeah. um, uh, there will be endings. Well, you know, I was thinking as you, know, you my, were my saying teacher used to, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add one more thing, which was sure. that my teacher used to say, suppose you could live forever no matter what you know when we live when we talk about living forever we assume we're going to be in great health the entire time mm -hmm. now maybe that's not so you know yeah. i mean i think that you know we were talking earlier about impermanence i think we rely on impermanence yeah i think it's not only what shows us beauty it's also something that gives us relief i mean you know that really boring dinner party that you're going to go to on saturday night it's going to end you know yeah, yeah. 
or, or this cold that you have is going to end, you know, or, you know, um, evil dictatorships will fall and, yeah. and hopefully be replaced by thriving democracies. Yeah. You know? So we rely on things coming to an end. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was going to say the stages like we had talked about before, those are stages that end, you know, presuming I could uh, plan on living forever. Um, there would be stages of life that have ended and, uh, and right. memories, I think, fit into that because even now, um, I don't remember the five-year-old me. What did I feel? What did I think? Uh, I don't even remember the specific experiences that I was having. So in a way, mm -hmm. that part of me is is dead and gone. Um, so, you know, if, if we reach this point where we can live forever, uh, 2,000 years from now, is that me going to be significantly different than the me that was talking to you here today? You know, would I, would I grieve that old me? I don't know. But I, I, I think you're right. There would always be the opportunity to still uh, um, live fully by keeping in mind the endings that life will always be having, the phases and the stages and the friendships yeah. and relationships, so many other endings. I mean, I think the question is an interesting one philosophically, you know, and what does that do to the structure of the society, et cetera, if people live forever? I don't know. You know, I can't imagine knowing that. The, the thing that I would want to be careful of is that we won't use a question like that to bypass our direct experience that we're having now. You yeah. know, yeah. the truth, the fact of the matter is now we don't live for 2000 years. Yeah. You know, we live for a limited lifespan. And then, so I want to know, okay, how do I do that really well? Yeah. You know, how do I do that with as much integrity and as much passion and as much, you know, joy and uh, fullness as I can muster? And how do I love just as hard as I possibly can this yeah. life that is fragile and vulnerable? Yeah. Well, one of the things that uh, I just thought of, um, you know, there are ideologies and, and religious views that are built around the idea of, of this being a perpetual experience. Sure, life ends, but then you, you continue to exist in, uh, you know, in an eternal state somewhere else, let's say heaven or something mm. like that. And what I found for me, looking back to when I when I viewed it that way, was uh, it can be easy to bypass the present experience in anticipation of well that future experience, then things will be better. But right now, you know, uh, I, I won't do what I need to do to change my life now because I'm I am projecting it to the future. And I think this thought of extending our ability to live forever can do the same thing. It, it can remove us from the full experience of being mindful in this moment, the, the only true moment that we have, the present. Mm. Yes. And, and uh, you know, look, we, we, there's a thousand ways to distract ourselves, you know, mm. and uh, that's just one of them, you know. Um, but there's also, it's kind of fun and playful to play with, oh, well, what if, you know, that, those are sure. fun things to play with. I like my mind's ability to imagine. And uh, and I don't know what happens after we die. No, I just don't, you know. Um, you know, maybe it, maybe all the things that religions have been telling us for millenniums will in fact be so. I think what tends to happen is we tend to take our sense of self, which for the most part we construct as something separate and apart from everything else. Yeah. And we imagine that continuing forever. Now that I don't imagine happens. You know, this personality isn't, thank goodness, is not going to go on forever, you know? Um, and so I think when we live in that way, it's, it's both a little absurd to me and also a little arrogant, 
I mean, here's what we usually do, which is everything is changing, right? Like your eight-year-old son told you, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, caterpillars turn into butterflies, dad, and, you know, seasons come and go, you know? Everything is constantly changing except me. Mm -hmm. Like I'm the one thing in all of reality mm -hmm. that doesn't change, you know? And, and we have that idea, you know, about ourselves oftentimes, and it's absurd. Yeah. And, and for me, it's also, you know, like when I see someone I haven't seen in many years and they say, oh, Frank, it's great to see you. You, you haven't changed a bit. I'm a little insulted, actually, <laughs> because I think there's been a lot of change in my life, you know, over these uh, 66 years. Yeah. 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 So um, uh, the fact is, uh, death is not this thing. It only happens at the end of a long road. It's happening right now. You know, this podcast will come to an end, you know, yeah. my sentence will come to an end. Yeah. You know, with that, I want to touch on, on, on the topic of um, uncertainty. And I think a lot of our discomfort arises out of what you mentioned before. I don't know what happens when I die. And what if we were okay with saying, oh, well, that's a perfectly acceptable answer. We don't know. Uh, it seems like we're so uncomfortable with uncertainty that we we feel the need to construct a, a certain narrative, even if it's just a narrative or it's fictional, but at least it's certain. Uh, and we do this with uh, not just thinking about death, but, you know, an example I use often, we do this when we're driving and someone cuts us off. It's It's not okay for me to not know why that happened. I feel much more certain when I say, oh, that person's a jerk. That's why they did that. I may be completely mm -hmm. wrong, but at least I've got an answer now. <laughs> and I wonder if our, if our ability to increase our comfort around the discomfort of not knowing, uh, what effect that would have on bigger topics like the topic of death. Hmm. Well, or, or climate change or any number of other social issues that we have. Mm. I mean, I think it's... Um, I think the problem lies not in uncertainty, but the fact that we fill not knowing with scary ideas, you know, scary thoughts, or, you know, the opposite of faith, we often say is not doubt, you know, it's, un it's certainty. Yeah. Mm. So um, there was a, there's a beautiful Buddhist teacher, Carol Hyman, and, and she wrote very beautifully. She said, if we learn to let go into uncertainty and to trust that our basic nature and that of the world or not different, then the fact that things are not solid and fixed, this becomes a liberating opportunity rather than a threat. I mean, like everything that. will come apart, Noah, you know? This is true of our bodies, of our relationships, of our life, you know? It's happening all the time anyway. It's not just at the end when the curtain falls. Coming yeah. together inevitably mean, means parting. Don't be troubled by this. This is the nature of life. Yeah. Uh, you know, our lives are not solid and fixed, no matter how much we try to protect ourselves and make white picket fences around our houses, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think knowing this intimately is how we prepare for death, also for any loss of any kind. And it's also how we really come to love and fully embrace constant change. Yeah. We're not just our past, we're becoming, you know? We're not stuck. We don't have to be stuck in old grudges, you know? We can forgive. You know, we can free ourselves from resentment and regret now, yeah. before we die. Yeah. You know, one of the uh, a common question I, I get when I'm exploring this topic in a workshop or somewhere um, is if you have this mindset of, of just being anchored in the present moment, um, 
does it do you run the risk of becoming indifferent to things uh in the future like oh i guess i'm not going to mm -hmm. pursue this career path because who knows you know who knows where things will go now mm -hmm. is that a risk that we run um and i have the answer i typically give for that but i'd love to hear your your thoughts on this uh on this idea i i think initially it certainly is a risk i mean i know for myself when i first got introduced to notions of impermanence i used it kind of as a club you know uh it was a way to not invest in anything you know in my relationships in my early relationships i thought well it's all impermanent why invest here you know why commit to anything but of course it's just the opposite it's because things are impermanent because they are so precarious that they're so precious that's why we love them so much, you know? That's why we really want to invest completely, you know? Not in some clinging, you know, craving way, but in a way that really honors and respects the fact that, you know, all relationships are characterized by constant change. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's the first thing, yeah. Uh, we, we can use it as a kind of defense against commitment and engagement. Um, but the other is that it's kind of freeing. It means that, we're not wedded to our past trauma, you know? We're not wedded to our, you know, future scary stories, you know? The other thing I wanna add here, Noah, which I think is vastly misunderstood, is we often, and in, in Buddhist practice is, is um, uh, subject to this problem, which is that we talk about the present moment as if it were like some nanosecond in time, you know? Yeah. And was that it? Did we just miss it, you know? I think the present moment has to be understood to include past and future. You know, the now is not a long, eternity is not a long, long time. You know, St. Augustine wrote about this. He said, the now is neither in time nor out of time. So when we speak about the present moment, we're talking about a moment that includes past and future, not that um, yeah, avoids it. When I'm remembering my third grade teacher, and, but I'm remembering her now, that's a present moment activity. You know, when I'm thinking about how I'll be when I'm really old, that's a present moment activity. Yeah. So it's not like, uh, you know, past and future and illusion. I, I think that's a misunderstanding. I think all of it exists here and now. Yeah. That means that we have access to an awful lot here and now. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And it means um, that we can fully invest, you know, without fear. Yeah. yeah. You know, taking this concept and, and applying it in the present moment, I, uh, I, I want to ask you about uh, people who are uh, currently going through a difficult stage, for example, uh, dealing with, um, let's say, a, ch a child with mental health issues or mm -hmm. suicidal thoughts or um, the difficulties of, of dealing with the possibility of death and feeling helpless that uh, I think in, in, in scenarios like that, um, mm. part of the difficulty is, is, is recognizing the pain and suffering that a loved one is experiencing and wanting to remove that from them. And, um, talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, what tips or advice, uh, would you give to someone who's going through a situation like that? Well, I'm careful about advice, you know, cause it's cheap and, and, um, you know, it's it's hard to give generalized advice, you know, without Absolutely. knowing the specifics of a situation. But I would say that one of the things that um, it's helpful for me to keep in the back of my mind and heart as I'm with someone in such a situation is that 
to build an empathetic bridge to them, I have to be willing to look at my own relationship to these issues. So I have to look at my own helplessness. I have to look at my own fear. I have to look at my own grief, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, when I'm with them and I say I understand, they will know I'm just guessing, you know? So they'll sniff out my sentimentality and my insincerity. And so in order to really be of service to others, I have to work on myself. And that's what enables me to be of service to others. And of course, serving others, I learn more about myself. I grow and develop for myself. So there's that mutuality of exchange that happens. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I think is a misunderstanding is that we often, well, there's a lot of language out there around the confusion between empathy and compassion these days. Empathy is that I feel with, you know, compassion is the action to do something to remove or alleviate the suffering. Mm-hmm. But so we can get empathetically overloaded with people, even our own children, you know, um, mm-hmm. we need to feel with them. But we also, you know, if I'm with my granddaughter and she's having a, you know, tantrum, I need to know that I can stay in my own seat, you know, and I can mm-hmm. use my wisdom and I can use my maturity and I can use my kind heart to comfort her. If I get over there and get lost in the, in the tantrum with her, I can't be of very much use. Or if I'm only in the action to her tantrum, I can't be of very much use. Yeah. So I have to really keep my own seat. That's what I have to do. Mm-hmm. Now, compassion um, often is talking about, is spoken about rather as taking away suffering or removing suffering. And that's good if you can do it, but you can't always do it. You know, I work with dying people and I can't take away their dying. Yeah. 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 But what I find is that when I'm really abiding in a compassionate heart, that means that I've really done my homework, you know, then they sense that. And they're willing to go to really dangerous places. Not, mm-hmm. not because, you know, it's going to be safe eventually. It's because they're companioned. They're compassionately companioned. Yeah? And so I think um, we underestimate sometimes the value of simple human presence particularly compassionate human presence, radical compassion, that doesn't always know what to do. Yeah. yeah. But it it's willing to be with the suffering. It's willing to stay in the room when the going gets rough, you know. And I think what happens is when compassion's there, and just one more thing on this, you know, when compassion is present, our defenses against what's difficult fall down. And then we can see the deeper causes of the suffering. And then we can actually intervene ourselves or help another to intervene in their experience in a skillful way. So compassion yeah. does more than just take away things. It allows us to stay with something until a deeper truth can show itself. Real, the actual truth of the real suffering can show itself. And then we can do something about it. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, and I think that touches on the second invitation of welcoming everything and pushing away nothing, uh, recognizing that situations like that, there may not be answers. And, and so you just, you're, you're with that person and knowing that, Hey, this is going to be a rough ride. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do, but I'm here with you. (laughs) And, uh, I think, I think we can add, it's already a moment of difficulty, but we can add to it by, adding that second arrow, right? Mm-hmm. Where we're now we're there thinking, this isn't how this should feel. Mm-hmm. There should be an answer. There should be something that solves this whole problem. And sometimes there's, there's not. 
Um, no, and, 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 you know, the answer isn't always to solve the problem. You know, sometimes the answer is in simply keeping company with people. You know, I've, I've been with some people in really horrible conditions and I couldn't do much to make those conditions go away. But in fact, yeah. I could keep company with them. Um, I yeah. think it also is useful not to just imagine that, that to use our skillful action, to use our wise hearts um, in action. You know, I remember coming into a situation where there was a patient who was um, very sick, coming close to the end of life, and the volunteer was there. And I said, how's it going? And she said, well, she's having a really hard time, but we're just being with it. You know, and she was in this kind of meditative pose. And I looked at mm -hmm. Sweating up a storm, and I said, "Well, it's good that you're being with her, but let's get a cool rag, you know. Let's 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 cool down her forehead, you know, um, and get her some ibuprofen because that will help with the fever, you know. So we want to make skillful interventions as well, you know, when they seem appropriate. So, um, yeah. you know, we want to use our intelligence uh, and our and our good kind hearts, and together they make for a very reliable guide. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Uh, do you have any specific uh, meditation techniques or are there are there meditations that facilitate with this uh, idea of becoming more uh, mindful of death? It looks like I, I may have lost the signal there from Frank. I'll give it a moment and see if he... Yeah. Are we still there? There you are. Oh, I almost lost yeah. you there. Sorry, uh, you started to say something and then I lost your audio. Okay, yeah, so my question was, do you know of any, uh, are there any meditative techniques or guided meditations that uh, help us to be more mindful of death? I'm thinking something like, you know, met, meta meditation for kindness and compassion. Is there something that's the equivalent that deals with thinking about death? Sure, there's lots of them, you know, um, and, um, you know, there are various visualization practices, visualizing one's own dying, you know, there's, um, the, there are these kinds of practices that we can do, but, you know, I think um, it's best to keep it simple, you know, and really look and see what happens at the end of an exhale, you know, what happens there in that gap between the next inhale, you know, that's a moment, right? Um, it's a moment of faith or a moment of fear, you know, do you really trust the next breath will arise and that you'll be able to work with it? Or are you afraid that it won't come and you feel like you have to manage it? Yeah. So I think that uh, learning to be simple in our lives and deal with our everyday life, you know, not thinking of some other meditation outside of our life, but, you know, just at, before going to bed at night, you know, reflecting on one's own day, you know, looking back and seeing with gratitude, you know, what we, what this day was like and about, about as important. My wife asks, and I sometimes before we go to sleep, we ask each other four questions. Um, I just want to be sure you're still there, Noah. Yeah, yeah okay. still the four there. questions are given to me by another friend, Angel Sarian. The first one is, um, uh, what uh, inspired you today? Yeah, beautiful. Second question is, uh, what challenged you today? You know, because we don't just grow in our comfort zones as we spoke earlier. And the third one is, uh, what surprised you today? That's a really good one. You know, uh, children love surprises. You can play peekaboo with my granddaughter and she 10,000 times and she loves it. But, you know, throw a surprise party for an adult and they say, who's responsible for this? You know, <laughs> so who's what surprised you today? And the last one is, what did you learn about love today? You know, that's a beautiful question to ask. So what inspired you? What challenged you? What um, 
surprised you? And what did you learn about love today? These were um, a great practice taught to me by a dear friend, Angelus Arian, who died a few years ago. Um, so those are practices, I think, that help us, you know, as, you know, wouldn't they be the great questions to ask as we come close to the end of our life and why not practice them now? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um yeah. well, I, I noticed a question just popped in and I, I know we're kind of getting towards the end of the hour. Mm. So I just wanted to extend the invitation to anyone who's listening. If you have any questions, uh, that you would like to ask now would be a great time to post them. Um, and, and one already did. Uh, this is Johnny asking, how important is closure before death? Well, you know, um, it's, and it's an ideal to try and come to. Um, but, you know, I'm a little suspicious of our ideas of closure, which is that everything gets wrapped up nice and neat and tidy, you know. My experience is that you close this and the next thing opens, you know. And so what I was saying earlier about watching the way we meet endings is really useful. Um, some people come to the end of their lives and they have meaningful conversations with family or friends or people that perhaps they've had challenges with. Um, and that's really helpful for them to step into, into their dying process. For others, you know, that's a more of an internal process. And they come to that understanding, you know, within themselves, not through relational conversations, you know. So um, I think what I'm really want to be careful of is that we don't set up a kind of idealistic idea about what has to happen for death. One of the things that happens in this culture is we put a lot of weight on dying people to do it well or to die well or to, you know, have a good death or all those things. Instead of recognizing that, you know, when we speak about a good death, you know, we might not know what that actually is like internally and spiritually for someone. We don't really know what it is that we need next oftentimes. What I think we can do is look and look at the systems and say, did the system support this person in a way that really helped them? Or did the system abandon them? We can evaluate the system and help us really look and see how to do that, how to help people when they're dying better. But I don't think it's so helpful to evaluate people's way of dying as a, um, uh, you know, as a way of understanding what a good death is. You know, I've seen people die, you know, opening in great kindness. And I've also seen people die telling the people in front of them that they hate them. And both of them, in my view, were actually appropriate to those individuals. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for... Uh, clarifying that because I, I agree with you on that view. I think it's dangerous when we start to decide what is a good death, yeah. what is a bad death. Well, again, I think we can say something about the system and how do we, you know, uh, from our healthcare system or other systems, you know, how do we, how are we supporting this person? You know, yeah. did we take care of their symptoms? Did we manage their pain? Did we, you know, um, uh, give them a certain degree of autonomy? What do we do? You know, Th yeah. those are things that we should evaluate, I think. Yeah. I think if we were to take that and flip it to um, what is a good life, what is a bad life, uh, we can run into some of those same issues. Um, but ending this on a note where we're talking about life, because the your book has the, these invitations, mm. but the ultimate premise is that we're discovering what death can teach us about fully living. Yeah. So ending it on that note with uh, this concept of, of what it means to be fully living, uh, what what do you have to say with with regards to the concept of fully living? What does that look like? Well, of course, it's going to look individually quite different to different people. Um, that's mm -hmm. 
I think that's part of the beauty of this incredibly beautiful opportunity we call life. Um, that said, I think that um, uh, living a life that is multidimensional, I think, is really a good way to think about it. You know, our life doesn't proceed in a linear way. It's, you know, living it on the horizontal, but also on the vertical, we could say. Mm -hmm. um, those two planes of existence, if you will, I think is re are really important to consider. Um, you know, um, is it a life characterized by integrity? You know, is it a life characterized by meaning, purpose? Um, is it a life that includes or aims at belonging? Yeah. These are the really big questions that, that really matter for us. Do we find ourselves, do we recognize the interdependency of our lives? That everything we do and say affects everything else and everyone else. And that we are, you know, affected and supported by um, everything else that happens in reality. So I think um, uh, full life is a, or a life that's fully lived is a life that begins to recognize these things as well. And, um, you know, temper is our notions of control. Yeah. I think that's really important to, to conclude as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. I, uh, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you about this topic. And uh, I'm, like I mentioned before, I'm grateful that you took the time to uh, make this appointment work to be able to yeah. jump on live with someone you've never talked to uh, and, and to spend an hour with me talking about such an important topic, a topic that at some point uh, brushes up against every single one of us. Well, it's brushing uh, up against us right now, Noah. You know what I mean? It's not like it's just, again, it's just something that happens at the end of, you know, a long, long life. You know, it's here in this moment, right? This podcast is about to come to an end, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, how do we meet it? You know, I, I want to yeah. end it by saying thank you. I really want to say thank you to you for doing it, first of all, and for inviting me to be your guest and to, you know, engage people in such a lively conversation. I, I don't think my, my book or my life is about just preparing for dying. Um, I think that's a short-lived understanding. I think it's how do we use death, the presence of death, to really help us see what matters most in this life. And inevitably, and most of the people I've worked with who are dying, they've asked two questions, Noah. Not, you know, big philosophical questions. They're more questions like, am I loved? And did I love well? Uh, those are the two questions that come to people's hearts and minds as they come to the end of their life. And we don't need to wait until death to ask ourselves those questions or to answer them. You know, we can do it now. So yeah. I, I like, I want to leave your listeners and viewers with that reflection. You know, you want a reflection on death? Ask, ask yourself those two questions. Yeah. I love that. Uh, and, and I would add that um, for me, the five invita invitations are absolutely invitations about life. Mm. You know, like you said, it, it's a book that uses death as the topic to really talk about life. It's a book about life and, and quite a, quite a powerful book. Um, so if, if you're interested in learning about the, the five invitations uh, in Frank Ostaseski's book, um, you can pick that up, uh, I'm sure, on Amazon. I will be posting a link to it on, on the interview that I'm doing. This interview will be transcribed. So uh, for those who want to reread it um, or listen to it or watch it, all of those links will be 
posted, and I'll share that with you. Can Frank, I, can I, I add one more up. thing? Uh, if I may Absolutely. Know. One is um, I now continue to direct an organization called the Meta Institute, M-E-T-T-A Institute.org. They can find us on the web. Or they can go to fiveinvitations.com and they can find not only information about the book, but lots of articles and podcasts and other things that help people in different domains of their life. People working with grief, healthcare professionals that want to know more about how to be a mindful healthcare professionals, people who want to be compassionate companions in their life, people who want to just step into life more fully. There are articles, blogs, all kinds of stuff on the site that we made available just just as a gift to the world, you know, so people can find it there on fiveinvitations.com. And the other is that, you know, um, I'm not very good at self-promotion, but I, I want to encourage people to look at the book or to get the audio book, which I read, um, because I, I think it's not just this good self-exploration, but it's a great conversation to have with people you care about. And the book is a really interesting way to have that conversation. People are doing it in book clubs and such, but get a couple for the holidays as gifts, you know, and have the conversation with your family. Talk to your parents, talk to your kids about this, you know? Um, yeah. There isn't a more important conversation. And I want to, to endorse, I want to endorse that message because um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have you on the podcast if I, if I hadn't read the book and if I didn't think the book was of tremendous value to anyone who's going to read it. Um, so Yes, I, I read the book. I wholeheartedly recommend it to uh, especially the podcast listeners who are typically people who are trying to do exactly that, live more fully, live more mindfully. Uh, death is a great way to do that. The way Frank presents that is, is wonderful. I listened to it on Audible, um, and I don't know if you noticed in this last hour, uh, it's, it's a pleasant experience to hear Frank talk. Um, and that's that's who reads the book. So if, if you're going to read it by listening to it, uh, that's that's another plus. It's actually Frank who's reading it. Um, but uh, yeah, are there any other sites that you would want to point people to if they want to follow you or your thoughts? Do you have a Twitter account or anything? Yeah, like they that? can find me on Twitter. It's F. Ostaseski or, or Five Invitations. Um, and uh, if they go to the websites, they can find events and things. We're, we're just posting the stuff for 2018 now, but they can find out where I'm teaching around the country, around the world, for that matter. I teach all over the world. So um, um, there'll be more information in, after January 1st on those sites. Yeah. But thank you, Noah. Thank you again. Awesome. And I really appreciate the conversation and you know the um, directness with which you uh, engaged me. Thank you. Thank you. And I will stay in touch with you by email. And I would love to maybe have the opportunity to have another conversation at some point sure. in the future. Happy to. Really happy to. Okay. Well, happy holidays. Thanks again. And thank you to everyone who listened in live. Um, and we will catch you guys next time. Until next time.